Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Disability History Association podcast. My name is Kelsey Henry. And I'm Caroline Leifers. And today we will be chatting with Emer Lucy, a PhD candidate in the Department of History at University of Wisconsin-Madison. Emer, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today. We are really so excited to have you here. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm thrilled to be speaking with you both. To start, thank you so much for sharing a chapter from your dissertation with us. So before diving into this particular chapter, we would really love to hear a little bit more about your larger project to set the scene for our listeners. Your bio mentions that your dissertation, quote, looks at the history of childhood developmental disability in the United States, analyzing the role of parent memoirs in the construction of autism and Down syndrome in the 20th century. Why did you choose to focus on parents in the story you were trying to tell? And what disability histories actually become available to us when we center the perspectives of parents of children with disabilities? Well, thank you for starting off with such a great question. Um, So I focused on parents um, largely because when I began doing this work, um, I started with my senior thesis. I've been working on this for a really long time. So my senior senior thesis in undergrad, um, I looked at newspaper coverage of autism from 1945 to 1990. And I found a lot about parents, um, a lot of ways that parents were discussing their children, parent activism, parent organizations. Um, And there's been very good work in um, disability history about parent organizations and that's touched on these things. Um, But I found parents in many ways were driving the conversation around childhood disability in particular. And I think that's something that is really worth analyzing um, in the way that that determines our cultural understanding of disability, um, what our expectations for childhood disability, but disability more broadly look like um, for developmental and intellectual disabilities, certainly. Um, The way that the construction of someone who is um, developmentally disabled as kind of an eternal child, um, which we can very much look at like Paul Longmore's work on telephones as um, really beautifully exploring that. Um, But I think the way that parents have been so influential in shaping what childhood disability looks like continues to produce um, that meaning in American society. And so that was kind of what had brought me to look at parents as a place to find how the meaning of disability was being shaped across this period. And I focused it clearly on childhood disability but I, and childhood developmental disability, but I do think there, that has resonances then with the other kinds of expectations we have for disability rights, disability education, and um, inclusion in society. Thank you so much for that. And one, one small follow-up, uh, just on this question of parenthood and what the focus on parents opens up, um, but also maybe challenges or forecloses in telling histories of disability. Um, I'm sure, I mean, we're all familiar with the nothing about us without us imperative that is a mantra that really came of age with the disability rights movement. Um, and it's an imperative that I think partially relies on an autonomous adult subject with disabilities. 
Um, and I think that autonomous adult subject in many ways has become kind of the paradigmatic proper object of disability studies or disability history. Um, and that is complicated when studying childhood developmental disability. So I was wondering if you could talk us through a little bit more about um, maybe the necessity of thinking disability relationally, thinking about families, thinking about parents when you're writing about children and childhood disability. Absolutely. This is something I think about a lot because I don't want my work, which is studying parents of disabled children to reify in some way the idea that parents should be um, the primary focus of, of disability studies, of disability activism, of our concern about disability in the world. I, I don't want to argue that or um, inadvertently further that idea because I think that idea already exists in the world in lots of ways. Um, yeah. And I guess that's more what I'm trying to analyze is why are parents so centered in discussions of childhood disability and what consequences does that have for the way that um, childhood disability is experienced and understood. Um, so seeing how the way that um, parents construct the narratives that I study in memoir, in guidebooks, in I do oral histories with parents, um, seeing how these things contribute to a particular meaning of autism and Down syndrome that does continue to be focused as a childhood condition um, and the consequences that then has in more recent movements um, of autistic self-advocates um, and self-advocates with Down syndrome um, in countering those existing narratives. Um, I, I try to see how parents have been encouraged and furthered in shaping particular constructions of childhood disability. Um, so I, it's, I do feel like it's kind of a fine line um, because there is, as I said, I, do, I don't want to be suggesting that like parents are the most important part of disability history, but I do think there is this body of work and this, this, influential part of disability history that parents have shaped um, that we can't analyze without looking at. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. To follow up on that a little bit, um, parent memoirs, as we've heard, are a really important part of your project. So what was it that sort of drew you initially to memoirs in particular? Where I started with memoirs, again, goes back to that senior thesis, where because one thing I found were reviews of memoirs in, in newspapers. And there are a few major um, autism parent memoirs that got a lot of press in the New York Times in particular. Um, and that would be Clara Parks' The Siege. And then um, Josh Greenfield had a series of books um, in the 1970s, A Child Called Noah, A Place for Noah, and so on. So I read like excerpts from these and um, discussions of them in the New York Times um, and found them interesting. But in particular, I was interested in an idea that I saw repeated in coverage of parent memoirs and coverage of autism generally about the idea that autistic children are unusually beautiful and that beauty is a constitutive component of the disorder. And this is something that I never saw in 
the history, but it was popping up all over the place. And I became really interested in the way that autism was, what the purpose of insisting on autism as unusually beautiful was. Um, and so for my master's thesis, I looked at both the scientific literature and then parent memoirs to see the different ways that beauty was addressed and how beauty was present in the scientific literature through um, roughly the time period when up through up until kind of the time period when a biological etiology became um, accepted or at least more accepted um, rather than a psychogenic etiology. So beauty and a psychogenic etiology went together in the psychological literature. But for parents, beauty continued to be something that they insisted upon. Um, and so I thought about like, in what way does a particular beauty hold power for parents who have a child who has just been diagnosed with autism? And I, one thing that this resonates with is that beauty is a contrast to Down syndrome. That Down syndrome, if that is the paradigmatic childhood developmental disability, is defined by a characteristic um, facial dysmorphia. And rather than, while, while articulating difference between autism and Down syndrome, that physical presentation is a clear point upon which to say, like, my child is not, is, is unlike, um, Down syndrome is unlike other forms of intellectual disability, developmental disability, and their beauty shows how different they are. Their beauty reflects um, the particular characteristics of autism. So there's a lot of discussion in parent memoirs of um, not just beauty, but like an otherworldly beauty or an ethereal beauty that th this child is like a changeling, who is like a fairy child, like kind of the ways that um, there's a lot of that type of poetic language and allusion to identify with the meaning of autism. And throughout this period, and even still today, there's a lot of discussion about the ways that autism is unknowable and like kind of fundamentally unknowable. And so how I think there was a lot of resonance for parents to connect their child's physical appearance to some sense of them being set apart from the world, that they are not your average child. And there might, and, and this kind of like what, might be different if the child were not autistic. There's certainly like a kind of um, pathos there or in, in the way that beauty became, beauty resonated. Um, that's the first chapter of my book and hopefully soon an article. But that's how I got started on parent memoirs was I was like, this is really interesting the way that parents are describing this. And this is very counter, this kind of beauty, autism as beauty is very counter to the way that parents of children with Down syndrome are creating a, um, a narrative of uniqueness and value, um, which I argue is through joy and being loving. And so those two kind of contrasting natures um, place autism and Down syndrome into communication. So you actually already started to touch on this a little bit, um, but the next question that I had for you was, why focus on autism and Down syndrome, like within this larger project on childhood developmental disability, and the way that you were just talking about how you found kind of 
an implicit, maybe sometimes an explicit comparison in the memoirs that you were looking at, uh, in the ways that parents were valuing beauty, like aesthetic beauty in children with autism, and there was a built-in contrast or comparison to the way that parents of children with Down syndrome were valuing their children. Uh, but I was wondering if you could expand on, expand on this a little bit more. Uh, why do a comparative history? What compelled you beyond some of these narrative arcs that you were finding in the memoirs that you were working with? Absolutely. So that's the um, answer I just gave does kind of touch upon like how I started with this comparison. Um, and as I've developed it and thought about like exactly why compare, I think what I've come around to or what I've, what I've kind of been developing is this idea that Down syndrome operated as a paradigmatic or the paradigmatic childhood developmental disability, uh, within mid-century America. So once in part because of its, um, clear physiological specificity and starting in, uh, 1959, it's chromosomal legibility. Down syndrome is this, um, immediately identifiable, or supposedly immediately identifiable and distinctive condition. And it operates as something that inspires other forms of, um, like search for other genetic uh, anomalies. So looking at like Andy Hogan's work um, and how that physical, those physical features are something that then um, genetic was, was part of genetic research into like, led genetic researchers to find other um, genetic anomalies. So I think the, the actual aesthetic characteristic created a particular pathway for um, other developmental disabilities. But over the course of the latter half of the 20th century, autism increased in prominence to become what is today, I think, the paradigmatic childhood developmental disability. And so it's these two things have reversed. And the way I'm interested in the way that that happened and looking at how has um, the etiological differences in Down syndrome and autism and the kinds of technological opportunities that exist I don't know if opportunities is the right word, but technological responses to these um, disorders that exist, or conditions, excuse me, I try not to use disorders, um, to these conditions that exist has created very different opportunities for parents to claim um, cultural meaning for each diagnosis. So the fact that following um, Down syndrome's identification as trisomy 21 and the um, growing availability of prenatal diagnosis via amniocentesis and access to abortion, Down syndrome becomes a, a choice, or at least is constructed, it's understood as a, as a choice, as an optional decision um, for parents to make, that the availability is there for you to know ahead of birth whether or not your child has this particular um, aneuploidy, and you can, if you choose, you can terminate that pregnancy. And so that idea of this as something that is, is a choice in life is very different from earlier understandings of Down syndrome as something that just happens um, and is, a, is, is just a part of the population and is quite different from the 
unpredictable emergence of autism, which takes on a very unsettled nature. There's changing diagnostic criteria, there's changing um, and increasing incidence um, of autism. There's it over the course of this time period, autism becomes much more common, much more prominent, and significantly more prominent in the cultural understanding. Um, even though at the same time period, also Down rates of Down syndrome within the population have increased, but that is not something people don't think that. Like anytime I mention this work to somebody who is not, you know, familiar with rates of Down syndrome, they're like, oh, well, most most um, pregnancies with Down syndrome are terminated. There's mo like there's very few people with Down syndrome now, and that's not true. Um, but our idea of how many people in the United States have Down syndrome is significantly lower than the reality, I think. Um, and so that relates to the idea that what are what is a greater kind of cultural concern? Because everyone is like, autism is is everywhere. Um, and certainly when I started doing this work, uh, there was, I think it was an autism speaks, which already you're like primed for whatever it's, I'm going to say next, um, but there was an autism speaks PSA that ran. Um, so this would be about like 2010. Um, and it was a single figure of it started with like a boy saying like autism i think there's someone at my school with that and then like he got a little bit older and it was like autism i have a i have a cousin with autism and like it kept it kept growing like in in you know saying like there's somebody with autism closer until it was autism my son has autism and it was like autism it's it's going to be everywhere um we're all it's it's and it was just this very strange sort of like fear mongering like like um message that I I remember it because it was so bizarre <laughs> um, but that is to me what I when I think about this work and thinking about the idea that ever, that people think autism is everywhere and certainly rates of autism have have um, increased significantly um, but at the same time the particular idea that that is this huge problem and what that means culturally that autism is on the rise and how does that reflect you know the the culture today and screen time and um is this what what does it say about america that everyone is autistic um is something that i think is really interesting and the way that autism is in its unsettledness in its ideological unsettledness um in its therapeutic unsettledness, in the like spectrum of presentations that autism can hold, autism can take on many different meanings and does. Um, there was a New York Times article, just or essay like a week or two ago by the mother of someone with autism, who is saying like, there's, why are so many novels featuring autistic characters why do they all seem so different? Like, what does it mean that people love to write a character with autism? And I think that reflects the fact, like, people love it because autism is so expansive as a category in our cultural understanding. Um, and that has a productiveness that something like Down syndrome, which is 
much more settled in our expectation of the diagnosis does not have. One thing that was coming up for me, Emer, is you were talking about kind of the proliferation of narratives, like books, TV shows now even, about characters with autism. Like I'm thinking in particular about the new Netflix, I think it's a Netflix docuseries, Love on the Spectrum. I haven't watched it yet. Have you seen it? I've only seen the like trailer. I haven't actually watched okay. the series yet, but I'm, I'm familiar. But I'm, I've been thinking, this goes back to something that you were saying about the ways that like culturally throughout history, particularly looking at like the second half of the 20th century, we see this equation between developmental disability, even adults with developmental disabilities, uh, associating it with eternal childlikeness. From like a 21st century like cultural observer's perspective, it seems like eternal childlikeness is still continually ascribed to Down syndrome, but in some ways autism has been allowed to grow up through this like proliferation of pop cultural narratives about adults with autism. This isn't really a question, it's just a, a comment, and I wonder if you have anything to say about that. <laughs> yeah, I think, I think that's a good point. And I think it does relate in part to the depictions of autism that we are familiar with, which yeah. tend to follow like a specific pattern um, and a specific type of presentation. And there is a freak. So like probably the most prominent person who, I don't know if it's actually ever stated, but the character on the Big Bang Theory would be like the first person, I think, which now there's also a show, a show about him as a child, I think. Like, that's a, it's a, you know, huge CBS show that ran for like 15 years or something, 10 years. And I think that is someone who, it's like autism as these like quirks, you know, that like is but he is, he is also brilliant and a physicist and like the way that that then shapes um, our expectation of what autism looks like in adulthood. Um, and that that is something that is quite different from the expectation of our cultural expectation of Down syndrome. Although I was, I was just kind of thinking as I was like thinking about our conversation for today, one thing that I think is interesting about Down syndrome culturally is there are not a lot of depictions of children with Down syndrome. Like there are, because more recently there have been characters with Down syndrome on TV shows. Like it, it, there was a person on Glee who was a supporting character. There's somebody on um, Mindy Kaling's new show on Netflix. There's a character whose sister has Down syndrome. And so there's teenagers, but we don't often see like someone raising a child with Down syndrome, but we see there's sort of like a jump between prenatal Down syndrome and then Down syndrome in like an adult or almost an adult, um, while still maintaining certain ideas about kind of like dependency and a need to be protected um, that I think certainly resonate with that eternal childlikeness or, you know, the kind of the, um, which dates back to um, early parent memoirs as well as telethons. Um, but I, I agree. I think there is this kind of interesting way in which 
autism is allowed to be across the lifespan in a way that um, Down syndrome is, is often connected with that childlike nature. Thanks for indulging that quick <laughs> pop cultural pivot. Oh, I'll always do a pop culture moment. Don't worry. <laughs> I couldn't resist. To pivot back to your dissertation, the chapter that you shared with us is titled Feelings as Important as Facts, Parents, Guidebooks, and the Construction of Childhood Disability. And it was a really interesting read, so thank you for sharing it with us. Um, this chapter actually focuses less on memoirs and more on guidebooks, particularly from about the 1960s through about the 1990s. So I would love to hear more about this. Were, were guidebooks for parents of disabled children a kind of new development in this era? And what made them different, in your view, from the parent memoirs that you've mentioned? Yeah, so guidebooks, I do think guidebooks for specific disabilities are new in this period, or I have not found any earlier than this. But guidebooks for parents are not new. Um, and we see guidebooks going back into um, the early 19th century, maybe earlier, I'm not a I'm not an expert on earlier, but there are parenting guidebooks um, for a long period. And we can see guidebooks for um, autism and Down syndrome fitting into some of the tropes of general guidebooks. What separates them, or what at least brought me to guidebooks as something that I find particularly interesting is the way that parent narratives are utilized within guidebooks. Um, so there is a lot of overlap between authors of memoir and guidebooks. Um, and as well as, and this is not to me unexpected, but parents themselves um, both write guidebooks and are referenced throughout guidebooks. And so this is something that's typical of guidebooks more broadly in um, mid-century and later 20th century, is that parents are often, like the idea that the expert who wrote the guidebook would reference, I spoke with 20 different families for this book, or would you know kind of have like little snippets from parents throughout the book. But I wanted to examine guidebooks to kind of see in what ways are guidebooks resonating with memoir and how are they diverging? How do they, how do these things operate in tandem um, to shape our expectations of disability and parents' experiences? So there are ways that I think the narratives contained within guidebooks build upon narratives that are already existing or, or produced by um, parent guide, parent memoirs, particularly thinking about, so I've already mentioned Clara Park's The Siege, which is um, the first major autism memoir. Um, and this was written in the 1960s. Um, so it's relatively early. Um, autism as a discrete diagnosis was first introduced in 1943. Um, and Clara Park writes about um, a, a kind of what became kind of the general like narrative arc of 
a parent memoir going through like seeking a diagnosis, her experience, you know, noticing something different with your child, taking a diagnosis, going to multiple different practitioners, trying to find different treatments, and ultimately um, creating some kind of resolution. But particularly the sustained metaphor of the siege that she is putting her daughter as the autistic figure under siege, that there is a child within that you can get to if you like, if you are willing to fight against that, um, is something that then recurs throughout these guidebooks and becomes a really powerful kind of message to parents about the expectation of what being a parent of a disabled child should look like. And so this is something that I find really interesting in kind of the way that parents are expected to take on a particular identity as the like someone who advocates for their child, who fights for their child, who is um, responsible not only in the general parental sense, but is responsible for your child's recovery, for your child's condition, and whether or not recovery is possible um, is something that becomes, that separates autism from Down syndrome in these ways because autism memoirs and guidebooks are instilled with a type of hope, typically, that you can get through to your child, that the result will be some form of whether it is, some will say recovery, others will just say like improvement or, you know, might end with like, if you saw my child on the street, you wouldn't know that he or she was autistic at, you know, first interaction. Um, so there is this kind of, that's the resolution in contrast to the resolution that's offered for Down syndrome, which is acceptance of who your child is. So there's, these are kind of the two like parallel arcs and one is about the child's recovery and one is sort of about the parent's recovery and those things are absolutely present throughout guidebooks and parents are kind of conditioned in what way they through these books like how you should the approach and um accommodate your feelings across this period um and in what way you are going to become the parent you're child needs and um, kind of create your the best opportunity for your child and how that will lead to the best outcome. So these are things that I see in these guidebooks that, again, I think contribute to what our expectations of disabled parenting look like or parenting a disabled child look, looks like, um, as well as our expectations for what the kind of life of someone with autism or Down syndrome is going to be. That's really interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously, from a sort of disability rights perspective, a lot of that emphasis on recovery or cure that you mentioned around autism, for example, is um, deeply problematic. But Absolutely. it also, perhaps, like, unpacking this history goes a long way to helping us understand the cultural moment in which people with autism were, were living, right? So, yeah. Um, uh, you've already kind of answered this question a little bit, but I want to ask it anyway more explicitly nonetheless. And um, I'll, I'll preface by saying one of your most compelling claims in this chapter is that guidebooks not only offered information, um, in many cases, as you suggested, to parents from parents, not just from medical authorities, 
Um, and this information can be about navigating your child's legal protections, um, educational options, medical conditions, treatment opportunities. Um, but these guidebooks also modeled and normalized the feelings that parents might have about their child's diagnosis or suggested potential sort of pathways in which parents' feelings could be sort of shuttled, right? Um, and I'm really interested in asking you just more about this. So you've already mentioned the sort of hope versus acceptance model, right? But what other comparisons and contrasts did you find between how guidebooks depicted experiences of parents with autism or children with autism versus children with Down syndrome? So I would say there's a lot of similarities, honestly, in part because um, many of these guidebooks, or at least some of these guidebooks, are written, are produced in like the same series. So there are, you know, they're from the same publisher, they're following a particular pattern of like, chapter one is uh, diagnosis, chapter two is, is um, etiology, chapter three, you know, like chapter eight is legal options. And the legal option is always written by the same people. Like there's, there's some real, um, there's a certain kind of modularity actually to some of these books. So the, the differences um, are, there's, there's differences, but there also is a lot of commonality. Um, and certainly in some type of, some of the emotional responses that parents are expected to have and are validated in are, um, are shared across both fields. So, you know, feeling frustrated, feeling um, upset at diagnosis. And like parents are encouraged to like take the time to, you know, feel those feelings and allow yourself to come to terms with this changing diagnosis and are very much encouraged that knowing more is a way to improve your feelings about this diagnosis, um, which of course is a little bit self-serving for someone trying to sell guidebooks that you should, or like publishing more books about disability that you should always be buying more books um, to <laughs> aid in this process. Um, but it's also great for historians because there's lots of books for me to look at. So there, there are those um, particular commonalities. Differences certainly come, um, and I think differences relate to the understanding of autism and Down syndrome um, at each time period. Um, so generally the books that I'm looking at are post, um, are in a time when for autism, officially the refrigerator mother theory would not be supported, but unofficially would still be circulating. Um, and the, the refrigerator mother theory um, is the belief that autism was caused by parents, in particular mothers, through the rejection of their child. The emotional rejection, um, the idea that uh, the child had been kept as if in a refrigerator in the cold away from the mother's love. Um, and this comes from several people within um, Autism History prominently supported this idea. Um, in particular, Bruno Bettelheim, author of The Empty Fortress, who is uh, probably the most prominent um, child psychologist of mid-century um, America and was a very popular like talk show guest. Empty Fortress was a huge well-read book. Um, so this was this was a, a very popular idea um, that even when 
it was, um, had been very much challenged. And, you know, I see in the scientific literature people saying like, well, nobody really believes that anymore, you know, in, in 1975 or 1980. It's, I also am hearing from people like, oh, my doctor told me in 1990 that I didn't, um, that I, I was at least somewhat to blame. Um, so it's, these ideas linger. Um, but the, the idea that you are not to blame for your child's autism is something that comes through strongly in guidebooks and the, the, that you should reject any practitioner, any um, child psychiatrist or physician, pediatrician, anyone who suggests to you that you are the cause um, is prominent and that you, part of what you as a parent are responsible for is guarding against those ideas, that you need to seek out treatment that is not um, psychological in nature, that is not psychoanalytical, that you need to be looking for alternative forms because there is, there are going to be people who will just try to put you in family psychoanalysis. And parents who are saying like, this was all I was offered with and, um, and it was horrible and I now hate the medical establishment um, as a result. Like that is something that is discussed in um, autism guidebooks that is quite different from um, the narratives in Down syndrome guidebooks where there, it's not as if there's never any um, discussion of bad practitioners because certainly there are, um, but the register is quite different. What parents of children with Down syndrome are counseled against is anyone who places limitations on what the possible achievements of the child might be. So being told like you, you should be able to, you should send your child to school. You should be insisting on, um, you know, the best possible education that you can find. And of course that changes over this time period as well based on, and there is a lot of discussion of new legislation. So um, idea when it comes out that people are really excited about and the ADA people are really excited about people are people are discuss a lot the way that um, things are getting so much better. And even even now as I'm writing this, it'll be better for you when you're reading it, you know, so the, there is this sense that um, you should not be the, the thing to caution against is anyone who says, like, your child will never speak, your child will never learn to read, your child should just be put into an institution. There's a strong, as, as expected, very anti-institutionalization, pro-inclusive um, education, pro-expansive um, services. All of that runs through Down syndrome guidebooks in particular. Um, it's present in autism guidebooks as well, but because the ideas about what the best possible treatment for autism are or would be is never really settled. There's less of like a clear pathway about like, you should be doing early intervention of this particular nature than there is in, um, the Down syndrome books are a bit more uh, prescriptive in some of those ways. So these two things produce a different kind of expectation of interaction with the medical establishment because on the half on the autism side uh parents are directly responding against what they feel like is a kind of hegemonic medical establishment that rejects them as um as being unfit parents who have caused their children to become autistic and on the down syndrome side parents are like are the 
authors and parents are saying, like, there are some bad practitioners, but on the whole, people do want the best for your child. You should be able to find a, um, a physician who is going to care for you and you should be able to find, you know, the, you should be able to, you should be able to get good care. And on the autism side, it's like there, there are parents saying, I just don't trust anyone but other parents. Um, and parents will say that's in, you know, the 1970s. That's not actually a new idea, even though it's something we now see often with, um, within like anti-vaccination circles. Uh, that has this history within autism parenting circles that I think is directly related to parents rejecting the medical establishment's um, belief in the refrigerator mother theory. So there are clear divergences in um, those areas between these books. That's really, really fascinating. I think you've again already kind of anticipated this, but I'd love for you to flesh it out more. Do you see these guidebooks or conversations these guidebooks were starting or reflecting as um, suggesting that there is like a nascent movement in this period around community formation, parents of kids with disabilities or identity formation? How do guidebooks fit into that? Is there more to the story? I'd love to hear more. Absolutely. So I think um, community formation and identity formation are absolutely going on. Um, and I think guidebooks are part of it. I hesitate if guidebooks themselves are necessarily the most influential feature or because one of the things guidebooks typically encourage is involvement in parent organizations. And I think parent organizations are hugely important um, throughout this period and a bit earlier. Um, and that's something that has been like reasonably well explored, I think, in the historiography. So like Catherine Castle's work, Chloe Silverman's work. There is a lot of work on parent organizations and how influential they were in um, shaping like kind of immediately post-war experiences of parenthood of a disabled child and um, creating advocacy around anti-institutionalization and um, promoting education and community involvement. So all of that is happening throughout this period. And I would say, so it's hard to know, are guidebooks more important? Or are guidebooks just kind of like a part of what parents are also doing, like in literal community formation, as opposed to kind of the imagined community that is experienced through reading the same books. So it's hard to say necessarily. But I do think guidebooks support um, particular types of identity formation and encourage particular types of identity formation um, in the kind of very involved parent that they are promoting. So parents who read these books are given a lot of stuff that they have to do to be an adequate parent to a child with a disability. There is, it's not an easy or relaxed process, like the type of advocacy that they're expected to do individually for their child, but also in a broader sense within the community is immense. Um, they are supposed to kind of be always their child's, like first, the, the person um, who is working on behalf of their child at every turn. There's always something more that you should be doing across, um, throughout these books. And I find interesting it's um, how, how rarely that idea is challenged within this literature. Um, so one thing I bring up in the chapter is 
one particular person in a book that I think is sort of like, that book is like explicitly like parents talk about parenting. It's, so it's less of a like prescriptive guide and more of like a here read, you know, 15 parents experiences. But one parent who is like, I was not going to make my identity being the um, like disability advocate parent. It, my daughter was not going to find her identity on the basis of being disabled. That was not something I was interested in. I, these meetings are useless. There's never more than two people who know anything at them. I, you know, there, it's this, so it's entertaining to read, but it's also something that what's interesting, you get to the end of the chapter and it's the, the woman who had written it was super involved in her local you know, ARC chapter or um, whatever it was. So this is somebody who like had been secretary, had been, um, you know, local chapter head, like had done all of these things and was just like, this was, and still was not encouraging other parents to do it. So there's something that I find really interesting about the way that, that I think the idea that parents are just as much as they are buying in are also rejecting it or that some parents are actively rejecting it and still other parents are never going to be able to participate in this because it essentially demands that the person who is um, an adequate parent is a middle class or upper middle class stay at home parent. There is not room to have two jobs and be a full-time parent of um, a child with a disability in the way that that role is constructed uh, within these books is creating a very narrow um, pathway for who actually is an adequate parent in this construction. This is only speaking to a certain very classed, very much raced as well. These parents are almost all white, not exclusively, but almost all white. Um, and living in, you know, East Coast or West Coast usually, and living in um, large cities or, you know, wealthy suburbs. Like there's a there's particular patterns of the way that the parents who are discussed in these books fall into. Um, and it does leave out a lot of the other um, parenting experiences and the experiences of people with disabilities who are not born into that family. And it raises, I think, a lot of questions then about the way that this particular archives is, um, has a lot of absences. <laughs> actually your everything that you just said about the ways that disability parenthood was contingent upon or like premised on access to resources money time um, made me think like if you're analyzing the ways that parents actually constructed uh, meaning about childhood developmental disabilities I'm curious if our models for disability parenthood are so like so predominantly white middle class how do you think that might have racialized uh definitions of autism and and uh, down syndrome themselves as being white middle class problems or conditions so autism in particular was specifically identified as a condition um, of the white middle class or upper middle class by uh, Leo Connor, who was the child psychologist who first 
used autism to um, as a as a discrete diagnosis. So from the start, autism was looked for in families who were white, who had um, educated parents, um, who were who who fit a particular profile. And that also related then to the to the expectations of the refrigerator mother because the refrigerator mother um, has educated herself out of maternal feeling. Essentially, she is she has lost her natural um, womanly nurturing side because she is um, too cerebral. Um, so there is an ongoing raced and classed expectation for autism that I think then is continually kind of reinscribed as the parents who seek out an autism diagnosis who have the ability and um to to look for that to take their child to um more than one diagnostician or you know seek out a child psychiatrist are also already going to likely be wealthy, white, educated, and so on. So there's this way that autism, um, as it falls into that particular category, uh, was sort of overdetermined for much of the second half of the 20th century. Um, and it's only after autism diffuses much more broadly into American culture that it becomes a more widely um, used diagnosis. So I think there, but I, I think your point is right that the expectations for what um, what autism looks like are kind of continually shaped by what we think autism looks like. So if you think autism is so so it's it's a self-fulfilling prophecy in that way, even as you know people are saying like autism actually does we can find it across all races and classes. Um, it it takes a lot of a lot of time for that to really change. Down syndrome is slightly more complex because I don't actually know. Um, I think it's a question, I guess, more of um, our cultural expectation versus like actual prevalence. Um, and I think that is related certainly to like the depiction of of down syndrome as something that is primarily white um, speaks to just kind of like the general whiteness of american media and the way that um things like parent memoirs are almost all written by well-educated white parents like who else can get a publishing contract i mean i think who's who thinks i should write a memoir but well-educated white people like it's rare to it's that is a I say this as a as a well-educated white person like the idea that my, I am worth writing a memoir about is the kind of thing that like reflects general um the general white privilege um and so that also infuses like whose memoirs are written how those memoirs are um distributed and published and um how like which memoirs get picked up for um, press and and so on like all of those things contribute to the idea that the, these parents are white and that also relates to like the um, thinking about Alison Carey's work um, the way that 
the proliferation of parent organizations in the 1940s and the 1950s was suburban middle-class white parents who were um, trying to challenge the idea that disability, intellectual disability within the family was um, something to be ashamed of and insist upon that as something that, um, that deserved community services, that deserved education and um, inclusion and remaining within the home and all of these things that then did, I think, become attached to a particular vision of middle-class white family life. Moving backwards just a little bit, I have a change over time question for you. I'm so curious, you've walked us through some of the dominant like narrative conventions and metaphors and emotions that you found in these parent guidebooks and memoirs. But I'm wondering like if we're just looking at this window, like 1960s through 1990s, what changed in these guidebooks about what was expressed narratively and what emotions were normalized? I would say um, emotionally, there's not necessarily, I don't know that there's a ton of change as far as, well, let me walk that back. I think what changes over time, um, there's a greater prominence in parents as, in the significance of parents over time. So, and the significant significance of parent voices. Earlier guidebooks are more often written by practitioners, um, when they're written by parents, parents are less likely to identify themselves. When they're written by parent practitioners, because there are many parent practitioners um, within both of these, uh, both autism and Down syndrome um, discourses, parents are likely to identify themselves on, behalf, on the basis of their professional credentials, not on their um, experiences as a parent. And that's something that really changes over time. So we, if we look at Lorna Wing as one person who wrote a series of um, guidebooks, starting with a pamphlet um, in the 1960s, and Lorna Wing was an autism researcher in the UK um, who is very well known. She coined the idea of the spectrum for autism. And she also was the mother to um, a daughter with autism. And over time, when it starts, she's, in she's all business. She never mentions her own experiences. Parents are always held at a distance. And gradually she like introduces a little bit of like her experiences working with the, um, with, a, with an autism parent organization. And by 2000, she's starting off, you know, that edition of her guidebook, like as a parent writing. And I think that's reflective of the way that over those 40 years or so, parent voices became not only more important, but became the important um, authority within autism. So this is something that Chloe Silverman writes about, the rise of the expert amateur um, within autism, that particularly like the idea that the rejection of professionals and the introduction of um, parent expertise and experience as the sole kind of arbiter of, of autism um, is a major change and that is shown within autism guidebooks as well. A similar thing happens within Down syndrome guidebooks, but not to the same extent. Over this time period, parent voices are included to a greater extent. Um, parents are certainly um, 
kind of continually looked to as co-experts maybe, or, or, you know, like as a significant, um, as, as the significant presence in, in a, a child's life and in um, the experience of Down syndrome. But the parents never can, never reach a point where their expertise supersedes professional expertise. Um, and so there's less of, there's not that kind of overtaking um, that we see in autism discourse. Earlier on in the interview, you mentioned uh, autistic self-advocates and the ways that adults with autism and adults with Down syndrome uh, also participated in meaning making around uh, their diagnoses and their experiences that um, intervened in uh, cultural constructions that came from parents. Uh, in some of the sources that you've encountered, how have adults with Down syndrome and autism challenged parental constructions of their disabilities? Um, and in this contest for meaning making, how have children and adults with autism and Downs defined themselves? in ways that have challenged both the parental definitions of disability that you've discussed with us already and medical definitions of their conditions and experiences. This is what I'm really working on right now. Um, the chapter I'm writing currently is about memoirs written by adults with um, autism and Down syndrome. And so I'm trying to see those points of conflict um, and what I'm finding so far, there's less conflict through the end of the 20th century, at least in majorly published memoirs, than, um, than I had kind of anticipated. And certainly in the 21st century, there's a like, robust discourse of um, particularly autism self-advocates who challenge um, parental and medical constructions of autism. I don't know enough um, about this. When did the neurodivergence movement, like when would you periodize that? It's 21st century? So that, I think neurodivergence, I think it's the late 90s, actually. But I don't know, the person who first coined the term neurodivergent is Australian. And so I'm not exactly sure when it comes to the U.S., but I would, I, I mean, I doubt it's that long after, but I, um, it's just a little bit after my time period. So I would love for somebody to be doing, I'm sure somebody's doing a history of neurodivergence and I really want to read it, <laughs> but um, it's not, it's, I, I'm, I can't claim to have done a ton. In part, I, I find the 21st century challenging because there is so much there with the rise of the internet in a much more meaningful way that it is a huge another project to, to start analyzing um, the way that uh, community and identity um, and meaning is negotiated with the internet as a, as a meaningful source. Um, but I, so I find as far as adults with autism and Down syndrome are writing their own stories. They're less challenging than, well, I would say adults with Down syndrome that I see are giving kind of a complementary narrative often, 
Um, so like probably the most prominent adult with Down syndrome to write a memoir-ish um, is Chris Burke, who was an actor who is, is an actor. He was in the show Life Goes On in the early 90s, which was about a family with a child with um, Down syndrome as uh, he enters mainstream high school. And this was a show um, that I don't think it was ever got great ratings, but it was like a kind of cultural moment. People, um, it got a lot of press and attention. And so he wrote, co-wrote a memoir that's sort of half his writing and then half his um, co-author giving like a more of a contextualized third person account of his life. And that gives very much a narrative that aligns with the kind of advocacy that parents had been doing as far as advocating for like understanding people with Down syndrome as complex humans who have, um, can achieve lots of things. There's a lot of emphasis on achievement. Um, and which is something that I think would, will later be challenged in terms of, um, um, disability rights discourse, but there's a lot of emphasis on achievement. Um, and you know, how, how much Chris can, and did do and everything. Um, and him as an inspiration, an inspirational figure. Um, and so I don't really see that as like necessarily challenging a ton, the, the way that parents write. What I think is fundamentally distinct about adult memoirs versus the memoirs of parents is that parent memoirs inherently crystallize disability as a childhood experience and a relational experience. Um, in contrast to reading a memoir by someone who is identifying as an adult and is identifying as disabled, um, forces the reader to examine not only um, adult experiences, but also to think of themselves in the position of the disabled person, as opposed to thinking of themselves as the parent of a disabled person, which is a quite a big difference. Um, that being said, there were a couple of diaries of people with um, adults with Down syndrome that were published in the 1960s. And I would imagine there's more, they're kind of hard to find. Um, but so there, there have been like similar things that are sort of advocating for greater educational possibilities, greater, um, greater achievements from people with Down syndrome across this time period that I think more like complement what parents are advocating for. The introduction of memoirs by adults with autism come later. So there are, at some points, um, parent memoirs will have a section that's written by the child, whether it's like in one of the Clara Park ones, there's a bit where she includes, I think, her daughter's like drawings and writings. And there's another one I'm thinking, there's a few that are sort of, that will have like some section from the, um, from the, the child or teenager's perspective that gives sort of a, again, it's not like it's countering because it's literally being published along with the, the parent's memoir, but, it, but that do give um, somewhat of a sense, they counter a bit the idea that autism is something fundamentally unknowable. If the idea is that like you can read this and understand it, it gives, there's a, that becomes a bit more, a bit less meaningful, I think, um, but the first memoir is Temple Grandin's when, I mean, she first writes a memoir in the late eighties and then she 
writes a more widely uh, published memoir with an introduction by Oliver Sacks in the 90s. Um, and she, I think Temple Grandin really does kind of challenge the idea that autism is unknowable um, and very much introduces the idea that like, no, I just know, I know things in, in a very different way. And so that then becomes adopted, I think, as a um, much more widely as a kind of way to understand autism. And Temple Grandin herself kind of becomes, Temple Grandin is, a, is an unusual figure because she would be an unusual figure in any group of people. Like she is incredibly accomplished. Um, and so she then I think does kind of support certain ideas about like what our, our understanding or our expectation of autism are or expectations are. Um, so again, it's like, is it really challenging? I don't know. It's hard to, it's, it's certainly challenging in some ways. There's subtle challenges, I think, within any, any book that is written by a disabled person in contrast to being written by the parent of a disabled person is going to counter some of the um, expectations of dependence, of um, eternal childhood, and so on that we find in parent narratives. Uh, but I think the, there is, there's a lot more that comes from self-advocates in the 21st century. So it's more speaking to like the epilogue of my book than that, or my dissertation than necessarily like what I can examine from the 20th century, I would say. Yeah. And I wonder, I wonder how much of a role the internet plays in kind of the, the formation of self-advocacy -adv networks uh, in online forums where people with autism and people with Down syndrome are newly articulating themselves in relation to other people. Yeah. Uh, not necessarily within the purview of parents or other people who've defined them. Oh, I, I think it's huge. Um, also because I think the expectation of audience is profoundly different in forums or um, networks, you know, associations like the Autism Self-Advocacy Network. The memoirs that I'm looking at are not a for us, by us kind of product. They are fundamentally not for a disabled population or a disabled audience. Um, and so that really shapes what kinds of stories are told, who is sought out to write them. Um, it's, it's not surprising in that sense that parent memoirs continue to be popular and continue to be published. And part of why I do think this history matters is that we still give an outsized importance to the way that parents um, write about their experiences in contrast to the way that we um, we listen to people, to adults with um, developmental disabilities and understanding like the way that those um, tropes have emerged and the way that they are shaped very much without the expectation that the audience reading them will be disabled, I think helps make those things understandable. Yeah, absolutely. It's really interesting. It, it makes me think back to those New York Times reviews of the memoirs that you mentioned, you know, right at the beginning of our interview. And not only are these memoirs not for disabled audiences, but statistically, they're probably also not going to be primarily read by people with disabled children either. So what did the writers and or the New York Times like think the you know, general reader who has nothing to do with kids with disabilities would learn from these books or get out of these books. 
Um, was it like some curiosity or powerful lessons on love? Like what sort of tropes are, <laughs> are happening here that are supposed to sort of speak to broader society? So definitely powerful lessons on love appear. Um, and that goes back to like, probably still the most significant parent memoir ever is um, Dale Evans Rogers, Angel Unaware. And Dale Rogers was a, the wife of Roy Rogers, the singing cowboy, who was like a big celebrity in the 1940s and 1950s. And she wrote this book that was um, about their daughter, Robin, who was born with Down syndrome um, and died when she was two. And the book is written as if from Robin's perspective as an angel in heaven speaking to God about her life. Um, and it was a huge bestseller. Like it was one of the best, one of like the, the second or third bestselling book of 1952 across any book. Like it really was massive. Um, and that book is all about what can children with disabilities teach us. They are here as sent to us as angels to teach us about love and acceptance and uh, the meaning of, of life and family and God and so on. Like that is always kind of an overarching expectation um, for parent memoirs, I think. Like the inspirational parent memoir is a big, continues to be a big deal. Uh, there, was, there was one published within the past like six months. Um, that I read reviews of that again was like, this will really teach you about what, what parenting is all about. Um, and memoirs take on um, that role once you expect them not in any way to, to be fundamentally unlike guidebooks. There's nothing about like what should the, you know, what kind of feeding tube you should use or, you know, should you do ABA versus uh, hearing therapy or something. Like they're all, it's all just, emotion and, 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 and learning from this. And I think that does then place a very different register on who is a disabled person in society that relates, again, you know, to telethons, to this idea of the tiny Tim figure, the inspirational figure, that as much as there are, I think, even then, like the, the, um, the insistence on achievement that's so common within um, memoirs, particularly of Down syndrome, but also of, of autism, becomes a little bit understandable if the achie achievement as opposed to inspiration is, is a meaningful change. Um, but one that does kind of still place an inspirational valence on like, look how much this person is overcome, look how much they can do, um, is a necessity that leaves out a lot of people with disabilities um, and does have these problematic, um, a problematic meaning still. Yeah. Yeah, that's really fascinating. 
Um, we've only read one chapter in your larger project, although I think we've alluded to other sections of your dissertation. <laughs> if you want to talk more about the general arc of your dissertation, what all the chapters are about, I mean, I'm sure people would love to hear about that. Or if you're working on anything else or have future plans that you'd like to share with people, absolutely now is the chance. Um, I mean, future plans are finishing it. Um, <laughs> and we'll see. That's about, you know, I can, I, the dissertation is examining how has Down syndrome declined in cultural prominence at the same time autism has, um, and looking at the ways that, um, particularly the introduction of, um, prenatal diagnosis and, um, terminations for, down syndrome have situated Down syndrome as a condition of pregnancy, while autism has an expansive unsettledness that allows it to be um, continually reinvented, um, used as kind of a cipher across a variety of different meanings um, as it as society kind of shifts and changes um, in its understanding of what autism is. Um, so I look at memoirs, um, I look at the um, scientific literature on um, autism and Down syndrome. Um, I look at guidebooks, I have done oral histories that I'm figuring out exactly how to incorporate. Um, and then I, I look at memoirs by people with um, Down syndrome and autism to, to situate them um, alongside and kind of within this this larger genre of narratives about um childhood disability so that's the project sounds great look forward to reading the whole thing yeah i can't wait thanks so much for joining us oh thank you for having me this was really enjoyable thanks to everyone out there for listening or reading the transcript please join us again next time Bye bye <laughs>